Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events and the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, there's no shortage of stories this weekend, is there? There certainly is not. And we do cover a lot of news stories every week. But Jimmy, I know you know this. We don't necessarily just cover news stories just to be another news program. We are looking at stories and things that are taking place in the world today that are kind of moving us farther along the timeline and just really showing us the imminency of the next main event on God's calendar of events. That is so true. You know, we have studied God's Word, Rick, and I love that, man. That is so good. And that's why we focus on these stories with Ken Timmerman, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and Europe, and David Dolan with the fall of the Israeli government. Folks, you got to stick around for that. Uh, Winky Madai will be here to further go in-depth on what that means, the fall of the government. Plus, Maurice Hirsch, an old-time friend of ours, uh, talking about the status quo of the temple, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, and then at the very end, uh, I'm going to revisit with a friend of mine because I think this is a historical landmark uh, weekend for the Supreme Court. So I'm bringing back my friend, Dr. Richard Schmidt, to talk about this event that took place this weekend. We're going to talk about the overturning uh, by the Supreme Court of Roe versus Wade. Well, I think, Rick, we've got to get started, and I'm looking forward to the answers that Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Winky Madad, and Maurice are going to give us today on the program. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our expert in geopolitical affairs. He's an author and journalist, and we appreciate him coming on just about every week to explain the situation in the world. Ken, thanks for joining us today. Rick, uh, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Well, we'll start off right now with the Russia crisis in Ukraine. And uh, even though it's been a long, hard slog, it does seem like Russia is, is making some headway. Well, the Russians are making headway at great expense in men, material, and the destruction of Ukraine. They are now on the verge of taking over uh, one of the eastern provinces that they covet. Uh, that's the province uh, that is bordering, the Luhansk province that is bordering uh, Russia. Uh, but they have destroyed the major towns and cities at something like 90%. This week, the uh, Ukrainian military finally ordered the withdrawal from a key town, Severnodonetsk, which they had been holed up in for several months. Uh, not much of the city is left. Uh, and so they retreat to the rear about 10 miles into Luchansk. And if Luchansk falls, then all of that entire area, which is important for Ukraine because it's their industrial stronghold. Uh, a lot of their heavy industry is located there. And this is what Putin has said he now covets. He wants to annex the eastern part of Ukraine. He claims it's Russian speaking. Uh, the Russian speakers uh, have been persecuted by the Ukrainian government. Uh, there are all these accusations that have been flying back and forth. Don't forget this area has been at war since 2014. So this is not a new war. What is new in this part of the country is the massive onslaught of Russian forces since February and the attempt to take Kiev, which obviously did not pan out. Well, one of the things that the world is doing to combat this Russian aggression is economic sanctions. With the lack of military might that we are providing to Ukraine, we actually are doing economic sanctions now. But it does not seem to be working. It seems like Russia has found new partners. And also with all these sanctions and all these organizations pulling out of Russia, there's nothing for uh, Russia to buy, if, even if they had money. 
Yeah. Well, P Putin said uh, this week that uh, Russia's trade with China, India, Brazil and South Africa has jumped 38 percent with all the sanctions. What I think we have underestimated is the ability of countries like Russia and Iran to slip the noose of international sanctions hmm. by trading together. Uh, there was a report also this week that the Iranians made a two million barrel shipment to China of their oil, again, against sanctions, and that the Chinese had paid them over $30 billion just this year for oil that they had uh, bought illegally against international sanctions. So sanctions are only as good as the countries that are enforcing them. And Russia has learned from Iran how to slip the noose of sanctions by trading amongst willing states. I won't say rogue states, but let's say willing states like uh, China, India, Brazil, and South Africa. Well, another area that Ukraine has sought support and that the world has uh, tried to support uh, Ukraine with is uh, accepting them into the European Union. How is that going? Well, there was a meeting last week, which we discussed, of uh, the three of the European presidents, France, Germany, and Italy, uh, who went to Ukraine to discuss this. And the European Commission uh, issued an opinion that uh, Ukraine should be on a fast track for membership. But a fast track could mean many things. Uh, it could mean a 20-year fast track. It could mean a two-year fast track. Uh, and it's quite unclear exactly what type of fast track Ukraine will be on. They acknowledged that uh, Ukraine had made some political reforms and this even as Zelensky banned his the only opposition party in Ukraine. But uh, they, they gave him a pass on that. Uh, they said he had made reforms on corruption. And this is a very real thing. Uh, but there may turn out to be a two speed Europe, one for real European Union members and a second EU for the candidate states. Now, at the same time that the European Commission recommended candidacy for Ukraine, they rejected the attempt by the Republic of Georgia to join the EU. Georgia has been very, very eager. They also have been occupied by Russia since 2008. And I've been going back and forth to Tbilisi in the past couple of years because I, I have been helping a former Iranian intelligence officer who uh, defected to the West and gave us information about the 9-11 attacks three months before they occurred. And he is sitting in a jail in the Republic of Georgia where he has not gotten a fa fair trial. And I think that the European Commission has looked at the justice system and has actually criticized the justice system in the Republic of Georgia and said, this is one of the reasons that we are not going to recommend their candidacy. So how long it takes for Ukraine to actually become an EU member, Rick? Ah, it could be anywhere from two years to 20. We'll just have to see. Well, as we are always watching the European Union and, of course, Russia, we will keep tabs on that and report on it in the future. Well, staying with Russia, but another one of their partners that you talked about earlier, Iran, and they, the Russian foreign minister went to Iran to talk about the nuclear deal. Can you tell us why he did that and what was the purpose? So Lavrov went there on Wednesday and, you know, Rick, I had to laugh when I when I read about this trip. I said, boy, it sounds like the former Soviet Union. Uh, Lavrov, you know, could have been a Soviet foreign minister going to meet a, the uh, leaders of a client state. Uh, and how many years and years and years did I report on that when I was based in Paris? Uh, it uh, was really extraordinary. They um, essentially issued these Soviet-era joint communiques where they pledged to cooperate forever in friendship and 
and solidarity and whatever. And very importantly, Lavrov backed the Iranians on the nuclear deal and said that the United States and the EU sh should immediately agree to resume the 2015 deal without any concessions from Iran. Now, that's a non-starter, obviously, in the West. But what is significant, again, is Lavrov's solidarity with the Iranian. He's treating the Iranian regime as an ally, as a client state, and not as a difficult uh, young, younger partner. And I think that itself is, is showing that there is now a Russia-China Iran access, something that you and I talk about quite frequently on this program. Well, you certainly have, and it continues to be evidenced, and we continue to see more and more of that influence. Well, my final question, Ken, as we move away from the Russia-Iranian situation, we look at another set of Middle East partners talking about Turkey and the Saudis, and they've had rough relationships in recent years, but it looks like that may be changing. Well, they have had a very rough relationship uh, since the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, in Istanbul, in the Saudi uh, embassy in Istanbul, uh, allegedly on the orders of Mohammed bin Salman, uh, who completely denies that he had any involvement in this. But Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, was in uh, Turkey uh, just this past week, meeting with Erdogan, handshakes, kisses, the whole nine yards. Turkey is undergoing a pretty extraordinary economic pressure. Uh, inflation, as we have in the United States, a stagnant economy, stagnant industrial sector. Uh, they desperately need to revive the relationship with Saudi Arabia. They lost about $5 billion of trade with the Saudis after the uh, killing of Jamal Khashoggi. And Erdogan desperately needs Saudi economic help. So he is willing to um, now uh, turn aside the, the allegations uh, about that murder in Istanbul, set that aside, turn the page, if you will, welcoming Mohammed bin Salman to Turkey. He is hoping to have his economic support as Erdogan really uh, enters an era where uh, the prosperity that he had offered the Turkish people in uh, exchange for his Islamic rule, and in some cases, his very aggressive uh, Islamic um, uh, behavior as a president against Israel in support of the Palestinians and against Jews in general and Christians in general, he now realizes he has to make peace with the real world. And this week, the real world is called Mohammed bin Salman. Well, one of the things you told us in the past, Ken, uh, when looking at geopolitics is follow the money. And with uh, the world plunged into uh, this worldwide inflation and economic situation, it's changing the dynamics of relationships, isn't it? It, it certainly is. And Joe Biden is going to go to Saudi Arabia next month as well to plea for increased Saudi oil production. Uh, I, I don't know what the Saudis are going to do. I, I know what I suspect. I suspect that they're going to uh, snub him, uh, you know, give him all the pomp and ceremony uh, coming into Saudi Arabia, but they won't give him the sword dance that they gave Donald Trump. Well, very interesting. Well, we appreciate you being our guide to these confusing and complicated geopolitical turns. So thank you very much, Ken, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for, so much for having me. God bless. Rick, great interview with Ken Timmerman in the south of France. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why we focus on the stories that we focus. I just want to remind you that we are focusing on events that are setting up for the future of Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the Middle East News Update with David Dolan right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Prophecy Today Weekend. 
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Search and rescue efforts continue at a painfully slow pace in Afghanistan. Thousands of homes collapsed during Wednesday's earthquake, burying entire villages and the people in them under rubble. Heart for Iran works alongside a network of underground churches in Afghanistan. Their contacts are okay, but only the Lord can bring something good from a situation like this. Pray the hope of Christ will reach those who need it most. Turning now to Kenya, more than 4 million people face starvation due to drought. That's a drastic rise from 3.5 million at the end of May. Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia face the worst drought conditions in 40 years. Believers make Christ's love tangible as they help people build rainwater collection systems or teach them to grow kitchen gardens. You can support this work through World Concern. A matching fund triples every gift. We'll connect you at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. You've been listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This portion of our program is the Middle East News Update, and as always, Dave Dolan joins us to help us go through news coming out of the Middle East. Dave, thanks for joining us. Always glad to be on your program, Ray. Well, Dave, starting right off the bat, a lot going on in Israel right now. Most of the time, our Middle East News Update does focus on Israel. The ruling coalition in Israel has agreed to dissolve and hold new elections. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what exactly that means? Well, you might recall, Rick, last week when you asked me about the pending dissolution, I said the government is finished, just waiting for the last nail in the coffin. And um, that nail came sooner than even I expected. We knew that there were going to be some no-confidence votes uh, during the week against uh, the government by the opposition. We knew that four members of the coalition had already defected. Uh, from it, basically, including two members of the prime minister's own ruling Yamina party. We knew that uh, there were all sorts of other issues and divisions. I won't go into all the weeds. But on Monday, uh, Bennett and Lapid, Yair Lapid, the foreign minister, uh, recognized that there was no way they could hold this crumbling government together, that they might as well start the process of moving towards new elections. And so they announced that they were dissolving the Knesset. Now, that takes three different readings, they call it, of the bill to do that in the Knesset before it actually uh, takes place. So that's expected to, we had the first one this week, second one is expected early next week, and then later in the week will be the formal end of the coalition. And at that point, 
As I mentioned last week, Yair Lapid will take over as acting prime minister from Naftali Bennett. That's according to the internal agreement that the two guys have between each other when they formed the government, that they would rotate at some point. Well, obviously, Lapid didn't get a chance to do that with the government collapsing. So this gives him four months to sit as a prime minister, as it were. And he is definitely the leading candidate to form another government on the center left. Uh, His party is projected to get at least the 17 seats it has now and maybe increase that a little bit. Whereas the other parties, Yamina may not even make it into the Knesset. It's dropped significantly. Its voters are mostly Orthodox Jews from the territories. They're very unhappy with this alliance with left-wing and Arab parties. And uh, that would be Bibi Netanyahu, of course, heading the opposition and the opinion polls taken immediately after the announcement of the dissolution showed once again that the Likud, Bibi's party, is picking up quite a few seats, maybe five or six. As I said, uh, Yair Lapid would have the second largest party and one or the other, it appears, would uh, become the new prime minister. Now, there's still a chance, as I mentioned last week as well, that Netanyahu can cobble together a new government without new elections taking place, scheduled now for October 25th. Uh, If he can get enough of the Yamina people, two have already said they would back him next time around. If he can get a few more, he might be able to form a viable government before elections. But most analysts say that's not likely. It would be a very thin uh, government like the last one, the outgoing one is, and that uh, uh, Netanyahu would prefer to go back to the electorate, get a fresh mandate from them, and then uh, form a government. So politicking ahead. And it means, of course, that Joe Biden is meeting with Yair Lapid next month uh, for dinner in uh, Jerusalem instead of Naftali Bennett. So a lot of pieces moving around on that stage. A little bit later on in the show, we're going to have Winky Madad on, and he will talk to us a little bit more. So we'll move on to a few other subjects. One of uh, the subjects I wanted to get your opinion on, and I know that you even knew who this uh, reporter was with your time as a reporter in Israel, but a group of 24 U.S. senators on Thursday urged President Biden to look into the killing of the Al Jazeera journalist. Now, we've talked about this story on this program before. We think some people are potentially using disinformation to advance their own agenda. But can you talk about this story and where we're at right now and and what are the developments and why are these senators doing this? Well, they were all Democrats, uh, although um, Bernie Sanders says he's independent and another senator from Maine, but they're all really caucusing with the Democrats. No Republican signed this letter. And I read it and I thought, frankly, Rick, it was ridiculous. They're demanding that Biden demand that the U.S. take over the investigation of Shireen Abu Akleh's death. That on May 11th, as you said, she was shot dead near Ramallah. Um, The Palestinians said it was Israel that did it, Israeli soldiers who were in an operation there at the time. The Israelis said, well, it could have accidentally been one, but it certainly wasn't deliberate. And give us the bullet. That will tell us immediately whose bullet it is. So they don't use the same uh, weapons. 
and we can tell for sure. But the Palestinians refuse that. Well, Biden's not going to get uh, the Palestinians to change that, I'm sure, unless he promises them a bunch of money or whatever. But, you know, does he care enough about it? There's so many other big issues. It's very sad that she's dead. She was very well known and very well liked in the entire Arabic speaking world where Al Jazeera goes by satellite. But I think the letter was, um, you know, political. It's not something that Biden will probably even respond to. And uh, kind of silly to think that the U.S. should take that over. I tend to agree with that. And the fact that they won't give up the bullet is, is, is another telling fact in that story. So we'll keep tabs on that in the future. But we'll move on. And you mentioned earlier about Turkey. And uh, the foreign minister, Lapid, has a visit scheduled to Turkey. There's just a lot going on there and between Turkey and Israel and also Iran. Could you explain what's going on there? Yes, indeed. It centers on Iran, Rick. We've been getting more information all week. A week ago, Friday, the uh, Turkish authorities announced that they had arrested 10 suspects, Iranian suspects, apparently, that were plotting to kidnap or kill Israeli tourists. And on Thursday, we learned also the former Israeli ambassador to Ankara and his wife, who live in Istanbul, where all of this took place. Uh, These arrests took place. The uh, Israeli Mossad immediately flew in some jets and took all these uh, Israelis that were being targeted out. They said in one case it was a couple in a hotel room, and they got there just minutes before the Iranian cell arrived to try to kidnap them. How they were going to get them out of Turkey, what they were going to do with them, is another question we don't have answered. But of course, Turkey and Iran do share a common border, so it would be possible to put them in an unmarked van probably and just drive them across and hide them as you're going across. But the Turkish government has been busy repairing uh, relations with Israel for the past year or so, and with Egypt and with Iran itself, and with Saudi Arabia. The Saudi crown prince was just there on Wednesday, um, now, he was being blamed for the death of a Turkish journalist uh, in, Wash- uh, in Turkey, but who was writing for the Washington Post. So that was a surprise visit. Turkey's having deep financial problems, and they need these other countries to support them, frankly. And so they're repairing relations with Israel. The president of Israel was there in March. And then, as I said, Yair Lapid went there on Thursday, and he thanked profusely the Turkish leaders for these arrests and for the crackdown. And the Turkish leaders had not too much to say because the news reports say they're a little embarrassed that, you know, their image is being tarnished as now being a new country where terrorism can take place. Of course, it's happened before, but uh, they, they have a lot of tourism and they rely on that. And a lot of Israeli tourism used to go there and they want to restart that. So this plot has been foiled. But, uh, Rick, it's part of what many are calling a larger operation. And the prime minister himself announced it, uh, Naftali Bennett, Operation Octopus, where he said we will no longer just go after the head of the Iranian allied groups that are attacking us, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, sometimes Hezbollah. But we will go more frequently to Iran itself and cut off the head, as well as these um, octopus um, entails. So that's an interesting policy. And of course, all this comes after a number of Iranian nuclear scientists have been killed in Iran over the past two months. 
that the Iranians are blaming on Israel. So this uh, Operation Octopus seems to be already quite an effect, but a very dramatic story. And uh, thank God the Israelis got out safe. Uh, but the government is still, the Israeli government, still telling its citizens, do not travel to Turkey at this time. It's still not a safe environment uh, with Iran determined, it seems, to uh, do this nefarious action as revenge against these killings. Almost sounds like the plot from a movie as you were describing that, but uh, we will keep an eye on that. And the relationship between Turkey and Israel, that seems to be uh, getting a little bit warmer. Well, we appreciate, couldn't tell that you were a little bit under the weather this week because you sounded great today and you really gave us a lot of information. So we appreciate you putting in that extra work this week and we look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm always glad to do it, Rick. God bless. We're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today, but we'll be back with Winky Madad. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. If you want to understand Bible prophecy, you've got to understand that God still has a special plan for the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem and the state of Israel. And that's why we focus on the Jewish people. Winky Madad joins us. He is in Israel. He's our expert on political affairs, and we need him now more than ever. Winky, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me on once again. Well, I texted or WhatsApped Winky earlier and asked him to be on the program to explain what's going on in the uh, Israeli political scene right now. And he basically texted me back and said, it's way too complicated. Isn't that correct, Winky? Yes, it is. I always try to tell the truth with you, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we appreciate that. If you could, and I'm going to ask you a few questions kind of to dig deeper into this in a little bit, but is there, without going into too many of the intricacies and uh, extreme details, because I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of details and a lot of moving parts in this. Could you explain in general what's going on? I will try to do this staccato, as they say, in bullet points, rather than meandering as my is my usual uh, method. A, as we on this program foresaw, the government collapsed. When I say the government collapsed, I mean that the coalition of all the parties that currently make up the government which is extremely diverse, from Arab parties to Jewish parties to left-wing to right-wing, etc., could not 
have the necessary majority to pass legislation and even in fact was fearful that it could lose a no confidence vote. Second point, looking at this reality, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and his partner, uh, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid, decided that they would call an end to the government and begin a process of dissolving the Knesset, which would mean setting up, passing a, a law of dissolving or dissolution, and then calling for new elections. That is the process we are in now. Why is it complicated? Just one small item. What happens if Mr. Netanyahu, for example, uses up the next few days and tries to get 61 members of Knesset to support him as prime minister, which would then say, we don't need elections. We have a new prime minister. What happens then? You're correct. It is very complicated. Well, uh, because of all this that's going on, and I believe this is the fifth round of elections that's taking place, what is the mood of the, the typical man on the street there in Israel, if there is such a thing as a typical man on the street? Well, if within the next week or so, the law passes and elections are set, most probably for the first week of November, because here in Israel, according to the Jewish calendar, October is basically taken up by holidays. Uh, Rosh Hashanah, the New Year, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, the Sukkot Tabernacles holiday, which gives very little time for the Central Elections Committee to set everything up. If that goes through, the only thing I can tell you is that according to the polls, which are always off by a couple of seats, just enough to make things difficult, Mr. Netanyahu is not 100% sure of getting enough of a majority to shoo him in as prime minister. It'll be very close and things could happen. Something could go wrong with his trial or something could go right with his trial, don't forget. Or some terror incident or, or, or Iran. All these things could affect the elections overnight. Uh, so you, the question is, what does the man in the street think? I don't know. The polls say it's close, leading to a majority for Mr. Netanyahu. But again, we're talking about three to four months in the future, and things could change. Well, it continues to get even more complicated. And you've mentioned several different names. You've mentioned, of course, we, we know the current prime minister is Naftali Bennett, Yair Lapid. The foreign minister has a role to play in this. Benjamin Netanyahu, the former prime minister, head of the Likud party, he has a role. Who is going to be the new leader of Israel? Is it going to be one of those three? What are those three people like? How are they different? And if it's not one of those three, who, who could it be? Well, let's put it this way. I'm going to guess that Naftali Bennett, one of those three, as you said, will drop out. I think he is very hurt both personally and politically. I think he probably realizes he can make more money in the private sector than being on CNN and getting his ego stroked. And I doubt whether his party exists anymore. So far, three people broke from it. And the other, and at least two others are thinking of breaking. And so I don't know if, if he could come back with a party. Don't forget, 
and this is why it's complicated, three elections ago, Naftali Bennett completely disappeared. His party disappeared off the map. So it's either Lapid, who has upwards of 20 seats uh, potentially, he will probably be Mr. Netanyahu's main opponent. That I could probably say. Just for our listeners' sake, what what kind of person is Lapid? What are his politics? What are his strengths or maybe possible weaknesses, or at least what you would perceive as a weakness? Yair Lapid is literally a lightweight. Uh, he, he didn't graduate high school. He served in the army as a journalist. He boxes. He trains with a personal trainer. He, he, he looks very nice. And he had a father who was in politics and in journalism. He represents what we call in Israel the secular, middle-class, center-left political outlook. In other words, he's strong on security. I will give him that. He's, he's pro-active uh, in terms of terror and Gaza and things of that nature. But he doesn't like any of the religious parties very much and is stuck with sort of that Tel Aviv uh, yuppie type of uh, economic social outlook. And don't forget, that's a significant part of Israel's population. What he's very weak at, in addition to being very anti-religious or religious establishment, to be fair to him, is that he's intellectually poor and puts on a very good show on television. But many people seem to feel that he has no depth and he failed uh, as, as economic minister, as minister of the treasury under Bibi Netanyahu a long time ago. So um, I don't know if, if the word flaky still has a relevance there in the United States, uh, but that's his type of his personal uh, public image. Very interesting. This may be somebody we're getting to know very well soon. And uh, again, glad he's strong on security, but the rest of it was not necessarily a ringing endorsement. Well, if we do go to new elections, we're going to have a new government, or even if they can put a new coalition together within this current government. Can you tell me, this is a two-part question, what kind of government do you believe will be next? And then also, an opinion question, what kind of government should be next? Well, that's tough. Uh, but I will say, I have to make just an ob- observation. Benjamin Netanyahu has succeeded over the last year to keep his block, his group of supporting parties together. Shas, the uh, religious party, uh, the ultra-Orthodox religious parties, they all held together. They they were up all hours of the evening into the early morning during Knesset sessions. That's a tremendous uh, success given Israeli politics and its factionalism breaking apart a lot. So he's dominant in the fact that he said, look, we lost I held my block together, and we're going to march on the election together. This could be very influential, psychologically speaking, on the voters, on the electorate. And uh, the security problems we had over the past year, especially with the Arabs rioting in Akko 
in Ram, Ramla, in Lod, and a few other places in the northern Negev, this could potentially mean that he has a strong possibility of setting up the next coalition. That's all I can say to your question. What, what do we do need is that Mr. Lieberman, for example, will, and a few others, Gidon Saar, who's in the New Hope Party, will stop saying, we won't serve under Netanyahu, and say, we will serve under the democratic will of the, of the voting public in Israel, which gave Mr. X, probably Netanyahu, the largest seats in the Knesset, and stop saying he is a democratic uh, destructive force, or whatever you want to call it. That's been the problem that we had why we've gone to elections. Parties split from the right saying we can't stand Netanyahu. Well, that's your personal problem. Get over it. The voting majority want Mr. Netanyahu. Join his coalition, limit him, restrict him, influence him, uh, break away later, but don't put us into this Vorks of continuous elections every year, year and a half. Certainly seems like some of the quote-unquote personality politics that we face here as well, and that can be dangerous. Well, you mentioned uh, the democratic process. If there was to be a silver lining to this whole thing, and as, as, as far as I can tell, Israel is the only democracy in the, in the entire Middle East, uh, would you call that a silver lining that democracy is essentially working here, even though it's very messy. Well, there's a limit to democracy. For example, right now, uh, a piece of legislation is being discussed, shall we say, in, in Knesset, and they're going to try to pass it. That a, a person who has a charge sheet, a court charge sheet, against him for crimes cannot set up a government, which is directed particularly at Mr. Netanyahu, okay? Now, we've had politicians on trial before, and the rate of prosecution is not very good. And the trial so far over the past year has shown a lot of holes in the prosecution. So what the opposition parties, or right now the coalition parties are trying to do, is saying Netanyahu can't set up a government. Why? Because he's on trial. But the Democratic principle is a man, even if he's on trial, as we know in America, is not is innocent until proven guilty. In other words, you're trying to say just because he's on trial, he can't be a coalition executive and therefore become prime minister. If he's found guilty, then maybe he has to resign. But why prejudge him? So as what I'm trying to say is in the left wing, we have a lot more anti-democratic forces that might uh, foul up everything. And uh, that's also part of the complication and complexity I spoke about at the very beginning. Well, Winky, thank you so much for coming on the program today. We appreciate your insight into what is certainly a complicated situation. We appreciate you coming on and doing your best to explain to us. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope the listeners uh, learn and appreciate from our conversation. Thank you. Goodbye to you and our listeners. Rick, I feel like there's nobody better to give us an understanding about what's taking place than Winky Madad. Well, we have a, an article that we're posting on our website, and it's uh, entitled The Status Quo of the Temple Mount.
Maurice Hurst joins us. He's from Palestinian Media Watch. We've called to talk to him about a few articles that he has up there. Maurice, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, Maurice, before I ask you about these articles, if you could just very briefly just give us a little bit of information about yourself and your website. So Palestinian Medium Watch basically follows and monitors the Palestinian Authority, looking through the window of its publications in different spheres of the media to understand really the, 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 the policies and actions of the Palestinian Authority as they themselves are telling it to the Palestinian population. The idea is to understand whether the Palestinian Authority is promoting peace or whether it's promoting something else which is contradictory to peace. Well, along those lines then, let me go to an article that you wrote a few days ago. And the article is entitled, What is the Status Quo on the Temple Mount? And and I thought this was a very insightful article. Could you explain the reasoning behind it? So I, I, we wrote the article on the status quo on the Temple Mount because in, in, in the recent period, there has been really an upspike in discussion by the Palestinian Authority, really led by the Palestinian Authority, that the entire Temple Mount is only Muslim, belongs only to the Muslims. And as Palestinian Authority Chairman uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas said, that Jews defile the site with their filthy feet when they go up onto the Temple Mount. Um, so on the backdrop of, of, of those discussions and those really, really harsh and, 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 and foul comments, um, we decided to look into exactly what the status quo on the Temple Mount is. Now, you have to understand that, that I'm sure your listeners will know that the Temple Mount is the holiest site for Judaism. It is the site even as a booklet of the, of the, uh, uh, the Supreme Muslim Council in 1924 said, this is unequivocally the site of Solomon's Temple. This is the holiest site for Judaism. And so we wanted to see how it had developed, how after the Six-Day War, things were arranged on the Temple Mount to allow Jews who for the entire, for almost a thousand years, um, the Muslims who had controlled the Temple Mount hadn't allowed Jews to visit the site. How exactly it was organized, what Moshe Dayan, Israel's then defense minister in 1967, agreed with the Waqf, with the, the, the Islamic Council, and to say, well, well, so this was the agreement. Here it's written down in black and white. Jews are allowed to visit the site and in unlimited amounts. So every time a bus and the PA attack and say, well, Jews shouldn't be visiting the, the, the Temple Mount. This is a breach of the status quo. Well, he's just lying. That's just not true. When he says that Jews are not allowed to pray on the Temple Mount, well, that's also not true because whilst there's been no positive decision to allow Jews to pray, there's, there's definitely been a positive decision taken by Israel's leadership to not prohibit Jews from praying on, on the Temple Mount in, 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 a, in a blanket fashion. It leads us to a little bit of a, a difficult situation where it's not really clear whether Jews are or are not meant to pray on the Temple Mount, but the, the importance of that statement being that it has nothing to do with the Palestinian Authority. Mahmoud Abbas has no say in this whatsoever. The Jordanians who illegally occupied Jerusalem and had controlled the Temple Mount um, from 1948 to 1967, have more to say on the subject than Mahmoud Abbas does. But really, the bottom line is that the, whether Jews can or cannot play on the Temple Mount is a subject which Israel's government must decide and no one else. 
because that is sovereign Israeli territory and the holiest site for Judaism. And so no one else should be allowed to make that decision whether I can or cannot pray. Let me just get this straight. When you're talking about uh, what took place in 1967 and people talk about quote-unquote, maintaining the status quo, there's not necessarily a document that says no Jewish presence or really not even Jewish prayer, or is that ambiguous? So there is a document or there is documentation saying that Jews would be permitted to go up onto the Temple Mount in unlimited numbers. That's an unequivocal agreement that was made in 1967. As regards praying, the Jews praying on the Temple Mount, that is a subject which is less clear. It hasn't been prohibited, but it hasn't specifically also been allowed. One of the things that your article also mentioned is, is it, it seems that there has been more of an awakening in Israel proper since 1967. It seemed like maybe that was okay at the time, maybe not. But as time goes on and there's continuing discord there, it seems like a lot of Jews in Israel are saying, well, we're not necessarily going to have a peace, even maintaining the status quo, and they are a little bit more willing to push the boundaries and possibly even to pray on the Temple Mount. So, so that's true. In, I think in the last, probably in the last three or four years, there's been a tremendous upspike in the number of Jews visiting the Temple Mount, and with the, with their desire of the growing numbers to be allowed to pray there. This is a subject which, is, uh, which had been discussed some 20 odd years ago and never resolved at the time. And, in, and, and, and really filling that vacuum of the absence of any positive decision to, to prohibit Jews from praying. So that's a, a, a subject which is, which is taking more form, uh, more and more Jews going up onto the Temple Mount and praying. And that, importantly, not being a breach of any status quo. When you say there has been more of a willingness for Jews to, to go to the Temple Mountain to pray, they're not going into the mosque, correct? And they're not going into the commemorative building that is known as the Dome of the Rock. 100%. The Temple Mount itself is, is, is 144 square meters. It, it, it's huge. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is only one small building on the southern uh, western uh, corner of, of the mount. The rest of the area... Is, is a huge open plaza, with the exception of the Golden Dome, sitting really in the middle of the huge area. Jews do not go into the Al-Aqsa Mosque in any way, shape, or form. Into the Golden Dome, the Golden Dome just, just physically sits on the spot where the Holy of Holies of the Temple was, um, of Solomon's Temple and of, and of the Second Temple. Um, this is possibly even within the holy site itself, the center, the epicenter of everything is sitting under the Dome of the Rock. And so Jews, definitely the religious Jews who are seeking to, to go up onto, the, onto the, the, the Temple Mount to pray, don't go into that area at all and remain only on the periphery of the Mount itself. Well, those are important details, and I wanted you to point that out because a lot of our listeners will hear stuff uh, over the mainstream media and over different uh, places. Uh, you just have to be careful with what you read and understand what you're reading. Well, my next question is another article. You just put this article up on Wednesday. Uh, this article uh, talks about a double role that's being played by the Palestinian Authority Security Forces. Yes, for many, many years, we at Palestinian Media Watch have known and have highlighted the fact that the Palestinian security forces 
are active participants in terror against Israel. These are the security forces that the U.S. has trained. These are the security forces that the U.S. still funds. These are the security forces that the U.S. provides with weapons. These security personnel are participating actively in terror. Now, just a few days ago, there was a video put up, a, a Facebook post by uh, the Fatah party, which is the Fatah uh, is the party of Mahmoud Abbas, the chairman, the president of the Palestinian Authority. That is the leading party. It's the party of, of Yasser Arafat. They've been in charge for the last 25 years. They put up a Facebook post uh, uh, showing pictures of security force members who have either been killed while fighting Israeli forces who are coming to arrest terrorists or security force members who have actively taken part in terrorist attacks and have now been arrested by Israel for their participation in the, secure, in, in the terrorist attacks. They are really flouting everything in the face of everyone. They're saying, we will con continue to take your money. We will continue to play along with this farce as if the Palestinian Authority security forces are actually fighting terror. But really, we know and we are proud of the fact that our security forces are actively fighting Israel, actively participating in terror against Israelis. And that is an unbelievable admission. This is especially important right now, and this radio program is aired all over the United States, and our president, President Biden, is be, uh, getting ready to make a trip to the Middle East, and during that trip, he is supposed to be going to Israel and then also meeting with the Palestinian Authority Chairman Mahmoud Abbas, and there's going to be a lot of things said, but we need to keep this information at the front of our minds because this, this is the quote-unquote peace partner that Israel is dealing with, correct? That's 100% that's right. I, I, you have to understand that three years ago, four years ago now, uh, um, uh, the U.S. passed the Taylor Force Act. The Taylor Force Act really is a response to the Palestinian Authority's payment of salaries for terrorists. Every month they pay imprisoned terrorists and release terrorists huge amounts of money. In 2021, just last year, they paid some $270 million at least to terrorists. This is a huge industry. And so the, along came Taylor Force. Uh, Taylor Force's name, the act is named after a, a, a U.S. veteran who was killed while visiting Israel on, on a trip with his university. He was walking along the beach in Yafo when a Palestinian terrorist came up behind, behind him and stabbed him to death. Uh, um, and, and when his family uh, um, found out that the PA was then going to reward the terrorist for murdering a, a, a Taylor, they, they advocated for the Taylor Force Act. The Taylor Force Act says that all USAID to the Palestinian Authority will be conditional upon abolishing the payments to terrorists, with one exception, really with two exceptions. One is the, the hospitals in East Jerusalem, let's put that aside. But the Taylor Force Act does not impede the, the provision of security force aid, right? It's called, there's a specific category of aid which goes to the security force. So now, even when President Biden is accepting and working in the frameworks of the Taylor Force Act, he can still provide Palestinian Authority with Mahmoud Abbas with some 60 to $70 million a year in aid for the security forces. When he speaks now, when, when President Biden comes to, to Israel and goes to visit with Mahmoud Abbas, he needs to 
knock on the table and say, we're providing you with $70 million of aid to fight terrorism. But you yourself are saying that these members of the security forces, Fatah members of the security forces, are actively participating in terrorism. How can that possibly be? That is the demand that President Biden should put on the table. Front and foremost, for Mahmoud Abbas, explain why there are some 600 members of the Palestinian security forces in Israeli jails for active participation in terror. That's an unbelievable number. Well, Maurice, thank you so much for all that you do. Your website, Palestinian Media Watch, it just highlights, it's not propaganda, it's not saying anything except shining a light on what the official Palestinian media that is uh, distributed, disseminated amongst the Palestinian people, this is what they're saying. We need to know this. Israel will need to know this as they make decisions on how they deal with the Palestinian situation. And we as Americans and as uh, American taxpayers need to know this as we determine how we are going to react. So we appreciate what you do. I encourage uh, people to go to Palestinian Media Watch. The website is actually palwatch.org, palwatch.org. Maurice, thank you so much. Thank you very much, and, uh, and, and keep well. Remember, at the outset of this half hour, I said, if you want to understand Bible prophecy, you have to focus on the Jewish people because God's not finished with them yet. He has a special plan. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll do a review of our Alpha and Omega series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, uh, I know that last week we talked about the new PDF series that we've added to our website. These are the books that we have. And uh, next week, I would like to focus on our uh, book, uh, Sound the Trumpets. Sound the Trumpets is one of the great books and really lays out the outline of the four things that we keep our eyes on in Bible prophecy. That's right, Jimmy. Those four things are outlined in our book, Sound the Trumpet. And uh, as you were talking about, we talked last week that we've put them up in PDF form. And that's actually was very popular this week. We had quite a few people going to our website and getting the PDFs. I think it's a lot easier for people. You can put it on your phone or keep it on your laptop. So it's a lot easier. We had those on sale half price at our website. And I'm going to keep that up for another week, uh, half price for all of our books on the website. Uh, thank you, Rick. That's a good idea. And I would encourage folks if you to have these uh, commentaries alongside of uh, the Word of God as you study and understand the times in which we're living. Well, this week, as we take a look at the Legacy Series, I want to tell you that we're going to review and then we're going to focus on the city of Babylon, that city that the Antichrist will use as his headquarters in the future. So we're going to start with a review of what we've already covered so far up until now. This would be Genesis chapter 10, 11, Genesis chapter 12, as we start to look at this future city of Babylon and the role it will play in Bible prophecy. We started, if you remember, looking at creation and how it sets the pattern and the place 
for the kingdom to come, a kingdom that is yet to come into existence. That kingdom is not in operation today. Jesus Christ will be the king when God the Father gives him that kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Creation set that pattern and the, uh, the place of where that was going to be. And then we talked about the Garden of Eden and how it will be almost a magnet as it draws this alignment of nations that will come to try to destroy uh, the Jewish state of Israel from Isaiah 51.3, Ezekiel 36.35, and Joel chapter 2, verse 3. They will be coming to the Garden of Eden, which they know is uh, the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. Talked about the flood and the flood and how it would be that which is really the basis upon which the Holocaust, when those aggressive demonic creatures are let out of the abyss, the Totoris, and come to the earth, over 200 million of them, to try to destroy the Jewish people and to destroy many other people on the earth. The king and the kingdom. The king would be uh, the one we talked about, Nimrod, and we looked at his protege, his radical protege, which would be the Antichrist. But we want to look at the kingdom today. So take your Bibles and go with me to the 10th chapter of the book of Genesis. That's where we see that the beginning of his kingdom, chapter 10 and verse 10, we can see how this all comes underway. By the way, Genesis chapter 10 and verse 10, when the word kingdom is used, it is the first time that the word kingdom is used. And in essence, as you look at the word of God, you have to understand that Nimrod was the first king. You're not going to have a kingdom unless you are a king. And so Nimrod becomes the first king as we study through here. Verse 10, chapter 10, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Notice, in the land of Shinar. Shinar, the two rivers talking about Mesopotamia, are what we know as modern-day Iraq. Now, so this is the beginning of the kingdom. God established a kingdom over in Genesis chapter 1. But we know that the devil's subtle strategy is to take the kingdoms of this world and control this world. From Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see a theocracy, and that's going to be the end of the theocracy until we get over to the last three chapters of the Bible, Revelation 20, 21, and 22. But in between, all of those chapters displaying the Satanocracy. And Satan is the king of this world. He has the kingdoms of this world. Remember in the temptation of Jesus, he said, jump from the pinnacle of the temple and I will give you the kingdoms of this world. And so we see that he has the kingdoms to be able to give to Jesus. And of course, uh, Jesus ultimately allowing that to take place, he could have stopped him right there that moment, but he allows that to happen. In the sovereign will of God, all these things are going to play out. It's interesting now what this king is going to do to establish his kingdom. We talked about how he would come to power, a mighty hunter, most likely wiping out most of the dinosaurs that would have been on the face of the earth for the purpose of attracting a people, the demographics of the world, the populace of the world, to come and follow him. Go to chapter 11, verse 4. We see, and we touched base with this as it related to the religious portfolio of Nimrod, but look here, he's going to establish a city. And they said, go to, let us build us a city. Now, chapter 10 and verse 10 gives us the evidence as to what the city is, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. 
Babel is the location. It's defined here in chapter 11 and verse 9. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did confound the languages of all the earth, uh, everybody that was speaking that one language, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. And so he's going to scatter them from that particular point in Babel. 294 times after Genesis, it talks about Babylon. And that would be the exact same location. It is 58 miles southwest of downtown Baghdad, about an hour's drive on the shores of the Euphrates River where it has all been, always been there. We'll get back to it in a moment. But I just want you to notice the fact that it is going to be a city. God does not want cities. Cities are very harmful for society. The first civilization, look back here in chapter 4. And let me just remind you, we talk about the days of Noah. There are three days of Noah, basically. The days of Noah before the flood... That would be chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the book of Genesis. The days of Noah during the flood, that would be that 377 days, 12 days more than a year during the flood. And then the days of Noah after the flood, chapter 9 of the book of Genesis, and I think it's verses 28 and 29 say that Noah lived after the flood 350 years. He lived to be 950 years of age. Remember, he was 600 when the flood came. He lived in Babel, or Babylon, where his great-grandson, Nimrod, started this city. Everybody lived there. And do you know something? If you look at the genealogies, you will realize that for 50 years, while Noah was still living, Abraham came into existence. He was born about 65 miles away from Babylon in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. They're just down the road from each other. I would imagine, I think it would probably be probable that Abraham, if he heard that Noah was living over in Babylon, don't you believe that he would run over and try to make contact with Noah? I want to tell you something. I certainly would. If I knew a man that lived on the other side of the flood and that was on this side of the flood and he's only one of eight that God spared, I'd be wanting to talk to him. And so I'm sure that they had a relationship, Noah and Abraham. And they talked about before the flood, and Abraham was able to understand some of the things that God was talking about. He didn't like cities. Go back to the the first civilization here. It's in chapter 4. Cain kills Abel in chapter 4, and then he heads out for the country or the location of Nod. Look here in verse 16. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. So he goes out now deeper into the Middle East, towards the Far East, to a place called Nod. Nod, the Hebrew word, meaning a place where people are running from God. Wanderer, basically Nod, but they're running from God. They're trying to get as far away from God as they possibly can. Went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse 17, look what he does. And he knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. That's not the Enoch that went into the heavenlies over there in chapter 5. It's a different one. Okay. Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So he builds a city. This is not God's plan. Do you know that in the beginning of the United States of America, about 80 to 85% of the population of America lived in urban areas out in the countryside. They were a part of an agrarian society. Only about uh, 15 to 20% lived in the cities. That is totally reversed now. Only about 15 to 20% live outside of the cities. 
80 to 85 percent of the population of America living in the big cities. This is not God's plan. He wanted them to be scattered. We drive through the countryside. We travel miles and miles and miles. You can travel from El Paso, Texas, over to San Antonio, and there's nobody living out there. They say we crowded the world. That is totally ridiculous. They talk about overpopulation. There's 6 billion people upon the face of the earth right now. Do you know that the size of Jacksonville, Florida could house 6 billion people? You could give 6 billion people two square feet in Jacksonville, Florida, the city limits, and put them all in there. You can take the state of Texas, give them a home for a, peop- a family of four, and you can put 6 billion people in the state of Texas, everybody having a little piece of real estate in a home for a family of four. We're not overpopulating the world. Don't know where they get that from. God said to fill the world. And he provides. But here's old Cain. He kills his brother. And then what does he do? He builds a city. You know what's wrong with a city? Sin spreads faster in a city than any place else. Disease spreads faster in a city than any place else. That's why God didn't want cities. He had a plan. We discombobulate his plan. You come along here, this first civilization, they started to have multiplicity of marriages. They call it polygamy. That's not what we call it today. We call it divorce. Excuse me. I'm not trying to be unkind. All sin is covered by the blood. But I think we ought to lift up God's plan. And don't provide for failure. This was the civilization. This is the civilization that God is going to wipe out. Established by Cain in a big city. Murder takes place. It's, you can read through chapter 4. It's unbelievable. But what does Nimrod want to do? He wants to build a city. Build a city. Babylon. It's the beginning of his kingdom. Now this is the prototype. This is going to set the stage for what's going to happen in the end time. What's going to take place is there's going to be another Babylon. But, but let, let me just wait before I get there. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We need to talk about, that was Babylon past that we just talked about. Let me talk with you about Babylon present. And when I say present, not at the time of 4,500 years ago in Nimrod. The next time we talk about Babylon in the Bible is about 2,000 years later after Nimrod. 2,500 years ago, the times of Nebuchadnezzar. That's when we see Babylon coming into focus once again. Nebuchadnezzar was the crown prince of the Babylonian kingdom. It wasn't the kingdom of the world. It was a small kingdom. The leader of the world that time, and actually Babylon came under the leadership of the Assyrian Empire. Do You do realize that there were two Gentile world powers before Babylon. The Egyptian Gentile world power, and they took the Jews into captivity and to bondage for about a 400-year period of time. And then they were defeated by the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians, the Assyrians, their capital city, by the way, was Nineveh. Nineveh, up the road from Babylon, both of them in modern-day Iraq. Nineveh is Mansul in northern Iraq today. And so Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, and they were controlling the known world. The Babylonians wanted to take charge of this situation.
And indeed, the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, did take charge of the world 2,500 years ago. This marks the beginning of the times of the Gentiles, a key phrase in Bible prophecy. With the beginning of the Babylonian Empire, we see God's plan for the Jews and the Babylonians in its beginning stages, which will play out in Bible prophecy and the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Next week, we'll see that Babylon the city has never been destroyed, a key factor to the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. More on that when we get together next week. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series, Alpha and Omega. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, there was a huge decision this week, a landmark decision by the Supreme Court. We're going to take a look at that with my friend, Dr. Richard Schmidt, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Search and rescue efforts continue at a painfully slow pace in Afghanistan. Thousands of homes collapsed during Wednesday's earthquake, burying entire villages and the people in them under rubble. Heart for Iran works alongside a network of underground churches in Afghanistan. Their contacts are okay, but only the Lord can bring something good from a situation like this. Pray the hope of Christ will reach those who need it most. Turning now to Kenya, more than 4 million people face starvation due to drought. That's a drastic rise from 3.5 million at the end of May. Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia face the worst drought conditions in 40 years. Believers make Christ's love tangible as they help people build rainwater collection systems or teach them to grow kitchen gardens. You can support this work through World Concern. A matching fund triples every gift. We'll connect you at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. You've been listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy D. Young Jr. Along with Rick, we look at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. <laughs> There's no shortage of news events this weekend. We've been covering the collapse of the Israeli government, uh, of course, the the war in Russia and Ukraine and what's going on and how uh, God is really moving the parts and pieces in place. But this weekend is also a special weekend. And uh, I know a lot of people are very excited about the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. I've seen a lot of people that are saying it's not over. This fight's not over. And the fight's not done. I know that for sure. So I decided I wanted to go to my go-to pastor, 
political friend, <laughs> former sheriff of Milwaukee County, my good friend, Dr. Richard Schmidt. Dr. Rich Schmidt, welcome to the program today. Well, thanks so much for having me, and uh, I'm looking forward to this very important subject. So this is an important subject, and you know how much uh, it meant uh, over the years to this program, to my father uh, covering this. In fact, I, my phone's been blowing up all day today. Rich, this is an, a landmark decision uh, that took place in 1973, and today, I would say, or this weekend, it was it's a landmark decision to overturn it. Why are pro-abortion people so upset when most states will not stop abortions? All right, so here's the issue, and I and I do applaud that uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, but here's the issue. The unfortunate reality is, in the majority of states, I think we're going to find that abortions are going to continue. Last night I watched an interview with our Attorney General in Wisconsin, Jeff Call, who made it very perfectly clear that he will not prosecute abortions that take place mm -hmm. in Wisconsin, even though technically it's against the law. So there's a rejoicing, if you will, that the Supreme Court got it right. But now seeing it's been pushed down to the states, we're going to see the majority of states are going to keep their abortion laws. They're completely going against the biblical concept that God gave us in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, that God knows every single person before they were even mm -hmm. thought about, much less conceived. So the non-biblical worldview, because Christians are definitely a minority in America, we're just going to see the abortions keep happening, except uh, maybe some of the states in the in the southeast will maintain uh, uh, no abortions. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, the country has not changed as a whole, and many abortions will keep happening. Right. And we know this is much more of not just a mindset, but it's a heart problem that our country is having. Why are so many people obsessed with the alleged rights to have abortions? Well, here's the unfortunate truth. Our society has basically become one that is focused on intimate sexual relations. Mm. It's, it's just in the epidemic proportions. We look back in the first Corinthians, there was a church that existed that was really struggling with immorality. Well, if we get outside of the church, which is the majority of the country, they certainly don't embrace a biblical worldview. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the Bible made it very clear that there should be one man for one woman. That is it. There's no exceptions to the rule. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, God makes this statement, flee sexual immorality, hmm. absolutely should not take place. So what we're finding in our country is that people are having many different immoral, if you will, intimate relationships. They get pregnant, they don't take precautions, and the next thing you know, the, the lady becomes pregnant and wants to rid themselves, if you will, of uh, the results of uh, the promiscuity that's taking place. I know this is a harsh statement, but there's one way to prevent having babies out of wedlock, which is to follow God's rule and not to have an intimate relationship until one's married instead of the promiscuity taking place. That's a big move for our culture, but that's what God asks us to do. Abstain until marriage when you're ready to have children. I agree wholeheartedly, Dr. Richard Schmidt. And uh, again, as we look at this, Rich, do you see that... Um 
Does God's word provide any insight regarding an anti-biblical worldview permeating society in today's world? Well, absolutely. When, uh, and Jimmy, you're an expert at this, is in prophecy. The Bible definitely speaks to what's taking place right now. Mm. It's no surprise that, uh, uh, according to Second Timothy chapter 3, specifically the first couple of verses, that what we're seeing is there are perilous times. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of uh, their own desires, and instead of following what God has asked us to do, which is to live a holy life that's pleasing to him, mankind, according to Scripture, will keep getting worse and worse and worse. With this uh, abortion issue, yes, we applaud Roe versus Wade being overturned, but unfortunately, when we have most states which follow an anti-God, anti-biblical worldview philosophy, these things will still keep happening. In other words, abortions will keep happening. People will keep committing immorality. And uh, this is just playing into what the Word of God said would take place. So it's no surprise. Again, we applaud Roe versus Wade being overturned, but unfortunately, our liberal anti-God culture will find out ways to circumvent that. The states will, many of them, will make it very easy to get abortions. Those that have laws, many of the attorney generals will not prosecute, and this fits right into the biblical scenario as uh, we see the stage being set for the return of Jesus Christ. Great stuff, Dr. Richard Schmidt, and I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, when you take God out of the equation, which the world is going to continue to do, it's going to get worse. It's going to get way worse before it gets better. And we only know it gets better when Christ returns to the earth. But before that, the rapture of the church will take place. Folks, uh, we need to be that light in a dark world. We need to, to proclaim God's plan of redemption for all of mankind. Again, this is a heart problem. You know, there's no way to deal with this other than the fact that people need to know that Jesus Christ died for their sins. And um, thank you, Dr. Schmidt. We sure appreciate your take on this. I know that this is uh, you've been following this and uh, you've done so much in, in the state of Wisconsin and around the United States. And I know that uh, my father would have been a, a, a very appreciative of the fact that you uh, and I work together today on this uh, topic. Well, thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate it, as always being on the program. And uh, I'm thankful that we're brothers in Christ. We share the same burden that your dad shared, and we're going to keep on keeping on until Jesus comes. Lord bless you, Rich. Well, that's it for our program for this weekend. And as always, I want to continue to encourage you to keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.